Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening to the Famous Dead People podcast, the only podcast that resurrects famous people from the grave and asks them all the hard questions. We originally air as a radio show on Radio Free Brooklyn, so if you like the show and you want to listen to episodes the day they come out before anybody else, check out Radio Free Brooklyn every Monday at 3pm for just the freshest Famous Dead People episode that you can fucking get. Uh, You're about to hear the episode where I interview Winston Churchill, played by comedian Federico Garduño, and Emily Dickinson, played by comedian Molly Cahan. It was a really funny uh, episode, but before we get to all that, just want to remind you all that my first book is coming out very, very soon. It's called The Kellyanne Conway Technique. It's me making fun of Kellyanne Conway for like 150 pages, and if you don't know who she is, she's a Trump advisor, and she's a big talking head on all the news shows. Uh, it's super funny, and it is available for, it is available for pre-order right now. It officially comes out on August 22nd, but you can pre-order it on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com and all that stuff. Uh, you can also check out my website, JarrettBarrenstein.com, for more information and show dates. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy Emily Dickinson and Winston Churchill only on Famous Dead People. Famous Dead People. It's time. Famous Dead People. Time to start the show. Famous Dead People. Famous Dead People. Oh, you know, famous dead people, famous dead people, famous stories dead stuck people. in the head. You're gonna hear thoughtful from me, even though all these people are dead. My guests today on Famous Dead People are the most recognized poet of the 19th century, Emily Dickinson, and Prime Minister of the UK during World War II, Winston Churchill. Mr. Churchill, Ms. Dickinson, thank you so much for joining us here on Famous Dead People. Oh my god, yeah, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure, you know. Now, I'd like to uh, to start with uh, Mr. Churchill. You know, um, it seems as though your entire life is framed by military service. Like, it's a large part of your biography. It's part of your personality. Like, you wrote about war. You fought in wars. You, you led troops. You were troops. Like... You know, uh, it eventually leads you to uh, leading the British Army in world wars. Like, would you consider yourself to be a war hawk? Like, what's your attitude towards war? Did you simply want to be of service to your country? Well, you know, it, uh, it's difficult to, uh, to ever say that one enjoys war, of course. Mm. So much suffering that comes along with it. But having said that, yes, I was. I am a war machine. Mm. Uh, as, a, as a boy, I was always uh, rushing at other children and, and smashing things on them, pine cones and the like. And, was, uh, so, so you're saying that, like, you would, uh, you, you almost had a uh, uh, not interventionist, but like a colonial attitude towards your childhood, almost, right? Yes, I was, I was seizing every uh, bit of value around me at, at my primary school. I was uh, taking uh, uh, dog food from my dogs. I was uh, <laughs> try, trying to make birds work for me. I was, I was sucking everything in, getting the marrow of life as I was. Interesting, interesting. And so, do you feel like the the gains that you made? as a child or something that like you then you know were able to propel you to success later on like were you like oh if i hadn't stolen you know so-and-so's candy bar then i wouldn't be the man that i am today that sort of thing well i would had a, quite a full head of steam coming in as going out of my primary school but then of mm. course uh, one loses some of that uh, when one uh, kind of makes a social faux pas, oh, while, social while, faux pas. yes while addressing my graduating class um i threw up on the podium you threw up on the podium yes. when you were graduating from what we would call high school. Is that uh, yes? Accurate? That's correct. Okay. I'd, I'd eaten a, a, a full sleeve of uh, uh, hot fries, <laughs> and it did not sit well. well. You, you would call them uh, chips, right? Hot chips. Uh, we of course yes, but whatever <laughs> it has uh, Andy Cap on them, the main thing, of course. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so you you eat this sleeve of uh, what we call fries, but you call hot crisps. 
you know, and then then you vomited at your graduation, and then you know that was. Uh, then I was persona non grata wherever I went. Uh, gotcha. So they, they used to be like, okay. There goes Winnie, the champion, the mm-hmm. Caesar. You're wearing the laurels in his hair, but uh, Caesar of this high school. Yo, yeah. I thought I'm like seize, like seize things, grab, grab. So I was grabbing things. Oh, so we, you, we, I thought you were referring to Caesar, but know, that's, like oh, that's were, also very nice. Seizing. Yes, I'll take that. You I were take Caesar, that. you know. Interesting. Yes. Wow, I, you know, I never realized the connection between those two things. Um, it'd be yeah, interesting to find out the the derivation of that. Well, we have a wordsmith here, so maybe you can shed some light on that. You know, Emily Dickinson. Um, you know, I'd like to ask you about that, but before we get to that, so you were this incredibly prolific poet in your lifetime. Uh, but many of your poems weren't discovered until after you death. After your death, you wrote around eighteen thousand poems, but fewer than a dozen were published while you were alive. Uh, but the Wikipedia is a little bit unclear on this. Is this because you only submitted a few poems, or because uh, you submitted everything, but everything was denied except for a couple? Okay, listen. Did I live my life the way I wanted to the first time around? No, not exactly. Okay. I was a real perfectionist about those poems. Mm. I only submitted a few for publication. Then I like spent all this time in my room trying to like get them the way I wanted them to be. But honestly, I am back now and I just am so happy that everybody's read everything I've written and I mm-hmm. just like I just want to like spread the word more. So actually, if everybody could just like follow me on social media, I'm just going to be like putting out tons and tons more poetry. So you're going to be you're going to have the opposite attitude that you had when you were alive the first time. Yeah, you're not going to you're not going to sit on the majority of your work. You're just going to put everything out there. Exactly. Uh, so people can enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. Jared, I have a phrase for that. It goes like this. Yolt, which is you only live twice. I have a way with words. And I just would love for that to catch on because really it's the second time around where you get to just live life to the fullest. And mm. that's what I'm here to do. So you kind of regret then the uh, the attitude that you had originally with your poems, which is I'm not going to release things unless they're perfect, unless they are, they are the top quality Emily Dickinson poems. Exactly, because I didn't understand that already they were perfect. Everybody loves my stuff. Mm. I'm like considered one of the best poets it's in true. American it's history. True. Definitely, absolutely. So what was I even worried about, you know? And now that I understand that, I'm ready to just hit the road, meet people, go on tour, you Maybe know? Do like an Emily Dickinson book tour. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, well, you know, I'd love to know more about that but you know i I just i gotta i gotta make sure that we stay on track the show is about the things that we did during our lives i definitely want to hear about your projects for afterwards but you know but just like you know we'll be asking about uh the things that did happen you know in the past um but you know so i know that the the poems that were published Mm -hmm. you know they uh were edited sometimes by the people that published them to make them more you know, mainstream for the era. As a perfectionist, did that bother you? Did that kind of rile you a little bit? Yeah, of course it bothered me. <laughs> I mean, it's the kind of thing that just makes you want to lock yourself in your room and then literally never come out, which is literally <laughs> what I did. So, yeah, I mean, you see somebody who thinks they know better, usually a man, obviously, yeah. and they just put their stamp on your work like you are not a fucking genius. The, real thi- it, the whole thing really reeks of a type of sexism that was rampant and, you know, some could argue was still rampant to this day. Um, I you know? would argue still is rampant <laughs> to this day. Well, so, you know, this this is, this is such a plebeian question to ask, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't because you're here and Winston Churchill is here and we're just talking about how he was a Caesar. Yeah. You know, could you say then that, would you say as a wordsmith that the derivation of the word seizing 
came from Caesar and the fact that he would seize lands, literally. Yeah, you said Caesar a few times. I assume you mean Julius Caesar. Yes, that's yeah, um, yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Like he took stuff, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, I know this might be a little bit hard for you two to understand, not being poets, wordsmiths yourselves, yes. but um, well, I know my way around a, a written word, of course. Long, yeah. long, great, long volumes of history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, well so yeah, Winston Churchill first became notable as a war correspondent. So, you know, like, you know, he's a writer. I'm a writer. You're a writer. You know, we all have, you know, bona fides. Obviously, we're no Emily Dickinson. Sure. I mean, whatever you guys need to do to sleep at night. (laughs) I get it. Um, So, yeah, but I do think there's some logic to the fact, like, words have meanings that come from the past. And Julius Caesar being somebody who took so much, it makes sense that now in modern day English, we talk about taking things as seizing. Hmm, Interesting. Well, I mean, it is spelled differently. So I'm wondering... If that, if if we could definitely make that, you know, connection or if that's a connection that we make, you know, later on in life. Well, actually, I think it's because the Caesars changed the spelling when they came through at Ellis Island. Ooh, that makes sense, yes. Interesting. I didn't know that the Caesars came through Ellis Island. Mm -hmm. I had assumed that Caesar died long before, you know, Columbus, uh, you know, quote unquote, discovered America. Um, you know, and then also, you know, way, way before the, you know, the establishment of Ellis Island as a place for immigrants to go through. But, you know, we'll get to all that, you know, as we, uh, as we continue during this interview. I'd like to go back to Winston Churchill for, here for a moment. Uh, so because of your exceptional military career, we tend to have this image of you as being like this larger than life, exceptionally brave, braver than the bravest human kind of a guy, which is why I found it so endearing that um, I read that when you were young that you had a little trouble, trouble at your boarding school and you hated it and you would often write letters home begging your parents if you could come back yeah is that is that correct is that a real story there's there's nothing uh, to be ashamed of there at all you know because um as a boy have a certain social standing you know we didn't quite we didn't know our parents too well Mm. oh yeah you you were raised by uh, by a nanny yeah we were shipped off as soon as we could walk and then Mm -hmm. you know the 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 weight of the empire thrust upon our backs and then (laughs) you know sometimes i'd be at a train station i'd run up to any anyone thinking they're my mother uh Oh, often, really? Just, often they were not my mother. Well, you know, statistically, yeah. it wouldn't be. No. And it, well, I, I, I thought one time I hugged a trash can. You hugged a trash can that you thought was your mother. Yes. Interesting. I, wow. That is, it just sounds like you were desperate for any kind of affection or anything. Yes, I had, I had uh, terrific body dysmorphia as well. I, I thought of myself <laughs> as a cylinder, in which uh, time was borne out to be closer to the truth than I would mm-hmm. maybe care to. Well, agree. I know that you had like some physical mishaps that sort of like, you know, um, made, made, you know, like you, you fell out of a tree. Yeah, I bonked my noggin when I was 18. Bonked your noggin. I was in a coma for three days. Yeah, when you went to India, you hurt your arm, and that became like a lifelong injury that you had, you know, like, like did you have this... Uh, you know, a, a sense of your own mortality? Did well, you... well, but mortality and they're touched, touched by fate, you know, because when I was in that coma... Touched by fate? Yes, but I was, I, was, okay. I, I ventured to the, to the kind of the other side, you know, mm-hmm. the, the spirit realm where I, I met a, a, a guide of mine, kind of a, uh, uh, like a great glowing uh, lion with so, uh, the so rainbow... Winston Churchill, that when you got hit on the head as a child... You had an image of a a, not, a spirit animal. Not a, an image, a friend. You had a, who, who kept oh. with me throughout my life. Oh, no okay. one else could see him. It was mm. a, it was a real snuffleupagus type of affair, you know, <laughs> where he would show up, and if you see me addressing a crowd, sometimes I wink, and it's no accident. I'm winking to him. So this is this is a character that was present throughout your entire life, even when you were a prime oh, yes. minister of. I of could the not UK? have done anything I have achieved in life without interesting. Yes. Wow. Oh, incidentally, did you guys know that in Sesame Street, they made 
Snuffleupagus is real because they didn't want to teach children that it was okay to keep secrets with strangers because they thought that like pedophiles would use that to their advantage. Do you guys know about that? Wow, Sesame Street was truly ahead of its time. It really was, yeah. yeah. And, they, you know, they were always thinking about the children. They yeah. were great in that way. They did not mess around. They didn't sugarcoat things for kids. Mm. When a character on the show, Mr. Hooper, when he died, they just told it like it was. Yeah, and they explained divorce. That's like, I think they won, a, they won an award for the divorce episode or something. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, but we're, anyway, we're getting off topic. Mr. Uh, Winston Churchill, you were saying that this um, this lion has been with you your entire life? Yes. This this, uh, this this spirit animal? Indeed. So what did it say to you when you were unconscious as a child, when you were in your coma? He said, Winnie, you've, you've got to get back down there, my friend. You know, you, you're, 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 you're pissing your life away. You're being, you're, you're being a sour baby asking for mama, <laughs> and she'll, she'll not come. You know, the, your country should call upon you, and you must answer. Interesting. First, by writing volumes and volumes. Of histories. Whoa, interesting. Okay. And then leading wars. Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, I'm sure that this uh, what, what, did this uh, magical lion ever give you a name or any way to address it? Uh, Uncle Feather. Uncle Feather. <laughs> he didn't. He doesn't have feathers, to be fair. It, okay. Uh, well, if you're just joining us, this is Famous Dead People on Radio Free Brooklyn, and my guests today are World War II era Prime Minister of the UK, Winston Churchill, two times, and acclaimed 19th century American poet Emily Dickinson. Yolt. Uh, so, so uh, Miss Dickinson. Wikipedia says that uh, your poems reflect an early and lifelong fascination with illness, with dying and death. Do you think that that's a fair characterization of your work? That's almost morbid the way that you the way that you focus on death and mortality. Oh yeah, I was fucking obsessed with it. I mean, everybody <laughs> I knew was dying. It was like the coolest thing to do, but it also totally freaks you out. You know, like that kind of thing, like where. All of your teenage friends are starting to have sex and you aren't yet. And you're mm. like obsessed with it, but also you're not sure if it's right for you. Interesting. That was okay. what death was like for me. Okay. So like my cousin died. A few of my mentors died. Like everybody had tuberculosis. So I was just. That was a big really, one. Yes. Yeah. I just mm. got so into it, you know, <laughs> but um, now I am like all about life, you know, mm, like okay. I was like before it was like. Because death would not stop for me, mm-hmm. but now it's like life will not stop for me. And so life came and it took me and I am like ready to go. So if people want to just, you know, follow me on Instagram, <laughs> I'm going to be sending out some like pretty cool imagery. This, like is, I'm- this is great and everything. But like I said, I really do want to focus on the things that you did while you were alive. You know, we can definitely talk about the future stuff. Okay, you know, Dar- eventually. I just want you to know that it's going to be like my great words over some bucolic scenes from Amherst, Massachusetts, my Ooh, fave. Okay. So like, I mean, just follow the account at M. Dickinson. You could maybe okay. do a film adaptation of some of your poems. Yeah, I mean, ooh, a film adaptation. Yeah. Oh, that would yeah, be cool. Think, I'm thinking of like a, a, like a skeleton driving by in like a cool car, a and then skeleton dri- Oh, because of how how she was obsessed with death and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Not just stop for me. Well, what you, I wanted to follow up on something that you said. You so you were like, it seemed like it was the cool thing to do to yeah. die back then. Uh-huh. I mean, that seems a little bit. I don't know. Um, it's it's hard to believe because like if you die you then do not get to reap the benefits of the of the cool that you were able to accumulate by dying you know and we're also not saying that it was suicide it was just death just no yeah, yeah. mostly like you know just the illness du jour okay um, and so like you really couldn't control whether or not you were going to get sick and die right <sighs> You know, you say that, but if you were cool enough, I feel like you found a way (laughs) to get what was going around. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, everybody who mattered to me um, 
died. And mm. so like that's got to mean something because I have good taste. So I was looking up to some pretty cool people, some mm. mentors who really influenced my writing and they fucking died. So yeah. I think uh, that's all the evidence you really need about what was cool at the time. Did you see any um, uh, reaction to people when they found out what somebody would die? Would, would people like start... You know, trying to associate themselves with them or their corpse or, or pretend like they were better friends with them or something like that just oh so that they could God. like be peripherally cool or something. Yes, constantly. Mm. Everybody was always having these stories, right? Like you would go to like a church service, like a mass or whatever after somebody would die and people would just start telling stories as if they were that person's best friend. Mm. But it was like, hello, did you write them 300 letters? I don't <laughs> think so. I did okay and it was just like enough everybody's trying to play that game mm -hmm. now what did you hope to gain by writing so much about death do you think that that would you know uh that you would have like some of that peripheral cool or was that your way of just kind of like uh like dealing with those big issues like you know writing about them so much oh no i wanted to shroud myself in the hipness of death oh, and okay. um i really just felt like if i could put my own stamp on it hmm. then i would sort of have like this ownership over people's imagery and idea of death oh. and so i would be like the purveyor of it it's almost like you were you know an early a mid, a mid 1800s version of like a thought leader you know yes. how like people would um People give TED Talks now and they try to associate themselves with certain things. Like, I'm the expert on X, Y, or Z. Jared, it's so funny you say that because <laughs> actually I have my own TED Talks. I call them Emily Talks. Mm -hmm. And I just is this, of, I'm sorry, is this another future thing that we're, like, thing you're going to be doing in the future? I mean, future, present. Yeah, I mean, this is, like, a big part of my brand these days. So if everybody just wants to head online, check out Emily Talks. I'm going to be talking about things like death, like hope, um, like wearing white in a way that looks cool mm. uh, year-round, not just between Memorial Day and Labor Day, so... Yeah, that, that's an outdated uh, a fashion thing. Totally. You know? totally. Yeah, I, I could never pull that off because I'm not the, the neatest eater, you know. Mm. Well, you know, I think that uh, you, you were definitely sort of a stout person, especially later on in your life. Like, maybe white would have been a good slimming color for you to wear. Uh, Emily, yeah. is that uh, is that a jive with your experience with wearing white? I know you, you wore a lot of white in your I life. I wore so much white. You yeah. know, I really think it's mostly about your attitude when you wear white. Mm, and if you adopt this vision that, like, you are basically a ghost, then it really just shrouds you in that cool aura of death and the whiteness just shines and speaks for mm. itself. It works for every shape and size, I swear by it. Interesting. So Winston, maybe if you had, you know, spilled some food on your white uh, outfit, if you had just, as Emily's saying, like maybe owned it yeah. a little bit, maybe that could have been part of your uh, part of your brand. Well, one time I was wearing it, like a white uh uh, shirt when I was in a battle and I got mm. cut quite bad. Mm, oh, and, yeah. and, I, and I thought on the fly to twist my shirt up and I and then untwisted it and it was a delightful tie-dyed fashion. Ooh, interesting. Oh, which I believe before. caught on quite, quite oh, yeah, later and, on. I think it was like only 20 years afterwards that tie-dye became huge. Yeah, and, and I didn't claim it. I said that's for the world. That's not for me. I didn't <laughs> care. I'm not that kind of guy. Like uh, like Joseph Salk and uh, and the polio vaccine. Yeah, he said, he said whatever. Go go work with it. That's same with me. <laughs> uh, I got to have him on the show, by the way. That just reminds me. Uh, so going back to you, Mr. Churchill. So you have this, uh, this long military career that brings you to a number of exotic locations, Cuba, India, Sudan, South South Africa was this part of the fascination of the military life was, was going to all these strange and new locations or was that just like a happy happy you know benefits well um to be frank I'd 
chased a, a, a dream all over the world. Um, a when, dream? Yes. Well, while I was a young boy, I found a treasure map uh, and had clues Whoa, leading okay. me. Wait, hold on a second. So yeah. I want to I be 100% clear about this. So you, you're saying that your military correspondence, your war reporting, your years in active service, and going to all these exact locations— it, it was because you found a treasure map when you all were in all in service Winston of Churchill. Treasure, yes, you you found a treasure map. Yes. Where did you, Winston Churchill, find a treasure map? In the yard. In the- <laughs> it it was in a cigar box at the base of a tree. I dug in- it up. I was trying to bury a toy soldier of mine to okay. give him a proper burial. And wow. I, uh, I dug up the treasure map and uh, I saw it had just dots all over the place. And I thought, well, I have to hunt these down and figure out what's what because it wasn't a simple kind of linear thing. It was, you know. Crazy, like I was thinking, like an eccentric billionaire let it out there. And billionaire back then was very rich. Oh yeah, like that's you know nobody had a billion dollars. You couldn't back even then. imagine. That is completely insane. Yes. Uh, so so did you, as you were traveling around, like find you know pieces of clues that led you further along this treasure map? Well, you know that the treasure map was a hoax. So at the time, oh, I I thought I thought I was I thought I was zeroing in on it, but it turns out I never was. That that is one of the things that Uncle Feather did. Let me know years, years later than I would have liked to. That seems messed up on Uncle Feather's part. So Uncle Feather, if you're just joining us, is is uh, Winston Churchill's uh, spirit lion that followed him around throughout his entire life and, and gave him advice. Um, and, uh, and you're saying that he only told you later on in life, after you'd already done all this traveling, that the, uh, that the, the treasure map that you found as a child was not real. Yes, well, he is a loud off feather. He, he, he's a wild <laughs> one. Neither, neither wholly good nor evil, but, well, you know. I'm just thinking about, like, your first trip, like, to Cuba when you're, when you're, uh, uh, covering the revolution down there, right. the Cuban Independence War. Uh, did you see anything down there that you were like, oh, this might be the treasure map Well, thing, he, here's you know? the thing. All right. There's a, a dot on Cuba, and it, it said, uh, look in the mummy's mouth. Look in the mummy's mouth. And uh, as far as I know, there were no mummies uh, yeah, in Cuba. Yeah, I don't Cuba. think. Uh, Emily so, Dickinson, do you know anything about mummies in, in Cuba? I do, but I really can't talk about <laughs> it. So, uh, All right, that's fair. I, I ran around looking like a fool looking for a mummy there, and I thought maybe it was a metaphor speaking. I went to hospitals looking for people's bandages, peering mm. in their mouths and such, which I could do. I was pretty wealthy. Yeah, yes, but, of course. Uh, uh, so, yeah, um, that, that, that's, in, that's incredible. You know, I have more questions I want to ask you about, uh, about all these exotic locations, but I'd love to uh, go back to uh, Ms. Di- Ms. Dickinson for a moment. Uh, so we talked a little bit about your lifelong obsession with mortality, uh, and scholars say that it started with the untimely death of your friend and second cousin, Sophia Holland, mm-hmm. uh, when you were 14 years old. Can you tell us a little bit about that friendship and why maybe that death had been so traumatic and specific for you? Yeah, totally. So basically the reason that that one was such a big deal is that Sophia and I had made each other friendship bracelets Mm. when we were nine, right? So that was five years of friendship that was literally tied around our wrists. And I had made hers with like a flower pattern Mm -hmm. and she had made mine with a butterfly pattern, which I don't Uh. know if you know this, but that's a very advanced, difficult stitch to do. And so it let me know that I was truly special to her, and obviously she was very special to me. Yeah, you wouldn't just make those kind of friendship bracelets for anybody. No, you know? it takes time and it takes dedication, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's just it's a clear symbol of friendship and 
undying sisterhood, except um, then she did die. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, just because she died doesn't mean that the sisterhood that you shared had to die, uh, right? No, I mean, she was buried in that bracelet, and they uh, um, cremated her body, so the bracelet was incinerated with it. And once the bracelet breaks, the friendship is over. So truly, it wasn't mm. just that Sophia died. It was that our friendship died That is well. a real shame. Did yeah. you feel, because I know that, like, some guys sometimes when they – get out of a relationship or women sometimes when they get out of a relationship like there's a there's an element of freedom you know where they're like oh now i get to go out and play the field a little bit more you know when when your uh second cousin and best friend sophia holland was you know uh, uh dead and buried and cremated and this friendship bracelet that you had made for her was burned up did you emily dickinson was there any part of your brain that was like well now i get to go find a new best friend you know now i get to go and uh, and play the field a little bit so to speak oh yeah i was like sign me up for mount holyoke let me meet some new ladies <laughs> right i gotta find some new bosom buddies but it, it was just a little bit hard you know i felt like people were mostly just not on my level i mean mm. i went to a school that women girls had not been allowed to go to until like two years before i started going there Ooh. so i was pretty ahead of the curve and yeah, it was a just... trailblazer from a very young age yeah, yeah. hard to build a squad when you feel your head and shoulders above exactly yeah. you know this is something that i'm sure that you it's... two have in common yes you know? and it's so funny Winnie, that you would be mentioning my squad because <laughs> actually um i have a whole network of social contacts from my days at amherst academy mm. that are my entourage now here in 20 2017. Do you want to give a shout out to your uh, to your entourage? Yeah, Do- yeah. I uh, just want to like say hey to Ashley. I want to <laughs> say hey to Olivia. Um, you ladies are the best. Obviously, everybody listening, I'm sure knows them because they are tagged in all of my pictures. <laughs> and you can follow their stuff as well. It's pretty fun. I mean, you're only going to get part of the story if you're just following me. You gotta follow them too. <laughs> one, of, one of my early squad goals was to kill Hitler. Mm. Ooh, squad! I guess I not so squad, really. I was, I was I was an older man at the time, but it's pretty well, I mean, pretty cool. Know, maybe maybe you knew about Hitler like before he came to power. Maybe like when he was a painter, oh, yes, you know, he's, he's, and he's, you and your squad were like, you know, always an ass. We just really want to kill this Hitler guy. Yeah. It, that, that wasn't. And that was actually the initial thing too, because he he killed himself. So and say I killed him, of course. But yeah. I like to think I bullied him into killing himself. Oh, by uh-huh. by winning the war? Yes. <laughs> I heard a rumor that it was because he read some of my poems. Don't want to brag, but I'm just saying. That is interesting. That's a good get. That's a good get. Because, you know, you you write about death and mortality in such a way, like maybe you have a way of getting in people's heads, almost like, you know, the the Joker in the uh, the Dark Knight series or. um, Yes, I do uh, consider myself an early Heath Ledger. I consider myself an an older uh, Jared Leto. (laughs) I think you're really punching down there, uh, uh, Mr. Churchill. I think not, sir. His work is among the finest we've seen. Uh, well, let's uh, let's go back to you, Mr. Churchill. So, so you know, you have this incredible uh, military career, but you you go to South Africa uh, as a civilian to write about this uh, this war that the uh, that the British are having with the Boers in South Africa, and you are captured and put, sent to a POW camp down there, but you manage to escape. And you become like this national celebrity because of that. Can you walk us through like, you know, how you escape from this South African prison camp uh, from being a captive of the Boers? Yes, but you may have seen this, of course, in any kind of film where someone's being tied up. But first, puff yourself up like a puffer fish. Yeah, that's so right. You have a bit of that's, wiggle uh, room. What's his name? Uh, the magician used to do that. Yeah, Houdini, uh, Houdini, yes. yeah. He was always say, take a deep breath, you know. We were very good friends. I punched him in the stomach. <laughs> To, to great effect, I believe. I think you killed him, actually. Well, that, that's not isn't that how he died? He got punched yes, in the stomach? Yes, but, but, but for, this was years before, so uh, I, okay. it was a slow burner, maybe, you know. 
<laughs> okay, so yeah, you were saying yeah. How, yeah, so I, 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 put, I took my 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 bounds, my bindings. I don't know how to say that. What I was mm. wrapped up, and I, I rubbed them off. I, I scriggled around mm-hmm. and then wedged my way out of there. But then that, when you saw free of the you know your ropes, that's not freedom because you have people uh, scaring you with guns and yelling at you to come mm. back, and yeah. you can't because it'll be put back in the same cage. Yes, so I exactly. made a beeline for the forest. Uncle Feather made. He illuminated a path for me with his golden light. Mm. Yeah, Uncle Feather, just want to make sure we're clarifying for everybody there is your spirit lion that has followed you and given you love and advice throughout your entire life, Winston Churchill. That's correct. Okay. And he uh, he, he led me to a, a, a patch of bananas, which I ate for, <laughs> for days. I, I carried them on my back, only them as sustenance. And I, mm. uh, all the while, afraid that any second I could be snapped up and put back in that cage. And, right. and all the while also searching for treasure. Wow. And so you were still on the treasure hunt at this point. Of course. Point I've life. never stopped the treasure hunt. It's, it, it's... Even, even after Uncle Feather told you that the map was fake, you're still continuing your treasure hunt? Especially because it's wow. fake. Wow. Because it, it's become a piece of art I'm living in. It's kind of a performance piece. Oh, of almost, like, like, a, like, a, like a Banksy almost. Yes. You know? Oh, I love Banksy. Interesting. Okay. Now, you obviously, you lived a more buttoned down life, Ms. Dickinson. You never yeah. had to escape from any POW camps or anything like that. Oh, no. Right? I essentially put myself in an imprisonment that's right. in that's my own right. home. Because yeah, of no. your reclusivity, that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, did you ever feel, you know, like maybe you had to burst forth and free yourself from those chains, or did you did you view what you had was a cage, or was it was it was it safety? Was it was it like being in the womb? Yeah, uh, the womb is a good way to put it because I was stuck there with my mom, um, <laughs> and basically my sister thought that it was like I was going to be just totally chill and happy because I'm unmarried, just staying around with my sickly mother, mm-hmm. taking care of her, and just like hanging out on our family homestead. Um, so I wrote my poems as my escape, oldest story in the book, blah, blah, mm. blah, so boring, who cares? Now <laughs> I have all these opportunities to connect with the outside world, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to waste we, a listen, single one. I, I, I don't want to cut you off again. I know that all the things you're doing right now are great projects and everything, but we have to take a short break, so we'll be right back with Emily Dickinson and Winston Churchill. Stay with us. Everybody just want to take a quick break from the show to remind you to subscribe to Famous Dead People on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts, rate us five stars, leave a comment, tell your friends all about us. That stuff helps us out a whole bunch. Yeah, recommend the show to your friends. I don't see why you wouldn't do that since you like it so much. Uh, Feel free to hit us up anytime you like at FamousDeadPeople at RadioFreeBrooklyn.com. You can send us feedback or if you have a Famous Dead person that you want to have on the show, I would love to accommodate you, a fan of the show, and put your favorite Famous Dead person on here. Also, go out and buy my book, The Kellyanne Conway Technique. It's super funny. Go buy it at a bookstore. Go buy it online. It is available to order right now. And lastly, if you really like the show and you want to send us some money, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash FamousDeadPeople and click on the Sponsor This Show button. All those donations help to keep awesome content like Famous Dead People on the air. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the podcast. Welcome back to Famous Dead People on Radio Free Brooklyn. Famous Dead People, the only show that resurrects famous people from the grave and asks them all the hard questions. I'm your host, Jared Berenstein, and we are here every Monday at 3 p.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. My guests in the studio today are former Prime Minister of the U.K. during World War II, Winston Churchill, 
and one of the most significant poets of all time, Emily Dickinson. Uh, so, you know, Miss Dickinson, a- after the, the death of your uh, second cousin, Sophia Holland, that, that uh, sent you into this little depression spiral, your parents send you to Boston to cheer you up. And it seems to work. Do you mind if I ask what was going on in Boston at the time that, that, uh, that helped you get over your friend's death so well? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I would just hang out around Harvard, mm-hmm. right? And oh, so Harvard was a school back then. I don't know when they were established, but yeah, they were around. in the 1850s. Yeah, totally, no, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, they were there. And um, <laughs> I would hang out there, and I would just, like, troll the Harvard students. You would troll the students at Harvard? Yeah. Emily Dickinson. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I would just sort of um, use words. Like, I would just drop words into what I was saying. And, um, like, uh, one was, like... Flinger Garden, right? Flinger Garden. And they would all be like, oh, what does Flinger Garden mean? And I was like, oh my gosh, you guys are at the smartest school and you don't <laughs> know what Flinger Garden means. And I am not kidding you. They would freak out. You know, you know what really pisses them off is hmm. if you burn them really bad and then you say, how you like them apples? Ooh, yeah. Harvard kids, they fucking hate yes. that. Yeah. If anything, if, if uh, the movie Good Will Hunting taught us anything, is that you do not want to tell a Harvard boy, do you like them apples? No, you don't. They're very Ooh, sensitive. Boy. Harvard yeah. boys are very sensitive. Much better to be an MIT janitor, am so, I right? So, so you at... Um, uh, at what was it, fifteen years old? Mm-hmm. You you were trolling these Harvard kids by making up words and then and then kind of like looking down on them for not knowing these made up words of yours. Yeah, and that's that's when I knew I was smarter than everybody and that I had a gift I needed to share with the world. Interesting. Um, yeah, and so that was actually really how I became committed to writing and this idea of being a prolific poet and author. And hmm. so, um, yeah, that's what really cheered me up about my time in Boston, just like making Harvard students feel like idiots. <laughs> So what I want, because that's actually interesting because, you know, the Wikipedia is very vague about when exactly you started writing your poetry. Scholars have only managed to date two poems that you wrote before you were 28 years old. But you're saying that when you're 14 years old, when you're sorry, 14 years old, 15 years old, you start trolling these Harvard boys with these made up words. And that's when Emily Dickinson, you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to actually start and uh, and and be a writer, you know. Yeah. And so, what were some of your early poems? You know, what are you? You're 16 years old, 17 years old at this point. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. So one of them is um. It, it went like this. This one was one that actually was never published, and I've updated it a little bit now that I'm here in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um. So I, you know, have changed out some of the words so that they make sense. Um. It goes like this. Oh, wrote... sorry. So this is in this is a previously unpublished poem. Yes. By Emily Dickinson. And mm-hmm. It's not one of the 18,000 that, uh, 1800 that You've we found. You've never heard this one before? No one's ever heard this poem before. No. And, okay, so what I'm telling you is I wrote a version of this poem when I was 16. Mm-hmm. And now, um, for sharing with the world, I'm actually a little bit nervous, but <laughs> I think you're going to like it, um, that before sharing it with the world, I decided to update it for your audience, Jared, okay. because yeah, I wanted to connect with people, and I'm great at that. So um, it goes, <laughs> it goes like this. Open a cold one. 
in your dad's pickup truck because I'm Emily Dickinson and I'm ready to fuck. Whoa. <laughs> no, that's a good poem. Yeah. Wow. Um, that is un. That is so racy and. And if I might, if I might say, uh, I don't want to sound like I'm offensive here, but it's very simple in comparison to some of your other poems. Like your other poems deal with these but streamlined. I would say I think that that, that, <laughs> that was always there, but you really got to the, the heart of it now. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's fair. Um, the original version, I'll tell you, I a lot more about death, a few more stanzas, more slant rhymes. But this one, I was just mm. like, let's just hit the nail on the fucking head. <laughs> you know, we're all here on this planet to party, mm. yolt. You okay. know. Yeah, that's totally that's totally fair. Uh, let's go back to you, uh, Mr. Churchill, for a moment. Um, so you're appointed the first Lord of the Admiralty during the First World War, which basically means you're in charge of the British Navy. Yes. Uh, and uh, and this comes to a tragic end, though, after the Gallipoli campaign, which forces you to retreat from government for a time. Can you walk us through that famous battle? So so you're trying to take Constantinople from the Ottomans during World War One. What went wrong exactly that that became the the disastrous Gallipoli campaign. Well, here is the thing, because I, I overstepped myself, certainly, but maybe not in the way you're thinking, because um, it was not uncommon when you are the head of a, of, of a great uh, navy to at some point step out. You know, you can't be at sea all the time. So mm-hmm. what I had done, uh, clearly to the detriment of our navy and my own reputation, was I uh, dressed up a bulldog in my clothing and put it out to sea <laughs> to command the navy. <laughs> And, uh, I'm sorry. I just want to. I just want to make so that we're 100 percent clear here that Winston Churchill, you were saying that before the Gallipoli campaign, you dressed up a literal bulldog as yourself so that you didn't have to go. Is that right? Yes. It, there, there is enough wow. of a, enough of a similarity there where it works, and I'd done it to great success earlier. Oh, is this, but, this isn't the first time that you dressed no, up no, no, a, no, no. a bulldog in your clothes to disguise. Yes, and. Depending on the dog, sometimes they would do a smashing job at really? it. Really? However, this dog wow. had n- knew very little about naval warfare. <laughs> and I'm not certain it had even been on a boat before. Oh, so you didn't use the same bulldog for each campaign? You would you would switch out bulldogs? No, they they burn pretty hot bulldogs, you know. <laughs> they you're lucky to get a couple of years out of them. Mm, interesting. Okay, yeah, that's that's so totally it was fair. a disaster. He he was trying to flank ships left and right, as mm. they say. Uh, I'd, I'd tied a pen to his paw so we could write orders, but it was just nonsense. It was wow. actual literal scribbles. So See, if- that's so beautiful. A lot of people think that even animals can write poetry. People think it's very simple, very easy. I've never heard better proof than what you just said <laughs> that that is and not the case. Okay, yes. so Emily Dickinson, you're saying that other people think that animals can write poetry and you're saying that that is false. That it's, is not true at all. Of course it's false. People love to say stuff like that. They say it about poetry. They say it about modern art. They're just like, oh, anybody could do this. A two-year-old could do this. My dog could do this. It's a fucking lie. That dog yes. that you were just talking about, clearly an idiot who wouldn't know a verse from a chorus. <laughs> yeah, show show me one dog that can come up with something as eloquent, eloquent and streamlined as... Crack a cold one in the pickup truck. I'm Emily Dickinson, and I'm ready to fuck. You like, said pickup truck. You really ruined oh, the rhyme. Oh, I, I apologize. I know that. These are your words. Everybody <laughs> just loves to put their stamp on my work. This is, Another I, man I apologize. just rewriting Ms. Ms. Dickinson, my Ms. words. That was, that was me misspeaking. Uh, it, it, was, it was a slip of the tongue. It wasn't me trying to edit or... Or make better something of yours, you know. Obviously, I'm not going to try to try to edit or improve an Emily Dickinson poem. Obviously, right? No. Um, if you did have suggestions, you'd be welcome to use the contact form on my personal website, though, where you.
you can mm. connect with me this about just, it really feels like we're talking about products things. and services that I'm willing to provide. Let's, let's go back to some of the things that you did. I'm in, just in, saying, if you need somebody to punch up your maid of honor speech, I'm your girl. So you're saying that Emily Dickinson will, if you send your writing, any writing to Emily Dickinson, then you will personally punch up a, uh, a maid of honor speech or um, uh, a commencement address or something like that. Really? Yep. No wow. problem. Wow, that's incredible. I'm definitely going to take you up on that because I have a, first, a best man speech to give in a little while. Oh, yeah. Talk uh, to me. So, so uh, when you're 32 years old, uh, Emily Dickinson, you start this correspondence with a literary critic named Thomas Higginson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's really impressed by your writing, but you never really press him for getting published. Even And he even said later in his life that he was surprised that you didn't try to push harder to get published. Uh, you know, and, and we already talked a little bit about how you said that you were... You know, only you're a perfectionist. You didn't want to put everything out there. But were you ambivalent towards being recognized for your poetry? Like, did you not care about being a successful writer back then? Uh, okay, leave it to a man to be so surprised that a woman didn't just <laughs> beg him for help. Like, I didn't have a game plan of my own. Okay. <laughs> Listen, yes, I was a perfectionist, Mm -hmm. but I had time because I was stuck at home, right, like Mm -hmm. I said, so I just knew what I needed to do, which was to go through, edit my own poems, because I had already seen with those editors, like, losers, no Mm. thank you, don't want your feedback. Gotcha. So I went through, made my own edits, started putting together some manuscripts, knew they would find it when I was dead, because people love me, they're obsessed (laughs) with me, of course they're going to go through my stuff. You played the long game. <laughs> yeah, and now look at me. Could you see it working out any better than this? Honestly, no. I mean, like, there, there there's no higher version of success in, post-life than you have, Emily Dickinson, you know, especially yeah. in American poems. There's no one even close except for maybe Walt Whitman. Nope. Um, uh, but during your life, didn't you want to reap some of, the, some of the rewards? I mean, like, Winston Churchill is a good example of this, you know. Uh, you were such a successful and beloved uh, leader, uh, not just of the military, but also, you know, uh, as prime minister of, uh, of the U.K., uh, surely that must have been, you know, uh, a benefit, you know, like you would have you would have uh, a fed off of the, the love of your countrymen. Right. Is that is that not a fair assessment, Mr. Churchill? You know, I never bought a drink in a bar at, <laughs> at beyond the age of 18. You know, it was pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would whenever I do like a speaking tour, I'd pass around a bucket of stuff and people would just give me anything. I got mushrooms all the time. What, you mean uh, like uh, like hallucinogenic mushrooms? Yes, yes. Ooh, interesting. Okay. Uh, like, didn't you want some of that, Emily Dickinson? Uh, listen, I've tried to make it clear, but let me just spell it out for you. <laughs> Everybody in the mid to late 19th century were losers, you guys. They oh, were dummies. Okay. They were, they couldn't even keep themselves alive. They thought that was cool. I realized by a certain point, these are not my people. Mm. So I wish that I had just put myself out there more. Yes, but I am happy to be doing it now. Okay. Which is why I also (laughs) am happy to officiate your wedding myself. So Emily Dickinson will marry you in addition to helping punch up your vows and maid of honor speech and best man speech. Absolutely. And hey, if you need a DJ... For later in the evening, maybe somebody to MC, make the announcements, you know, tell everybody it's time to cut the cake, time for the hora, whatever it is. 
I'm your girl. I'm right. the life of the party she is now. Emily it's a lot of hustle there. Yeah. Emily Dickinson is your one-stop shop for uh, everything related to your wedding. I, I hesitate to ask, but in, I'm assuming that includes wedding planning. You know? Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, just stay Listen, I, up I, I Pinterest. Gotta, I gotta stop you there. So for for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to the famous Dead People on Radio Free Brooklyn, and my guests today are acclaimed 19th century American poet Emily Dickinson and wedding planner apparently, and uh, World War II era. Prime Minister of the UK, Winston Churchill. Uh, and now, so going back to you, uh, Mr. Churchill, so you, after the First World War, you're one of the only people to sound the alarm about Hitler and the need to to build up the British military again. Uh, why do you think that you were one of the lone voices on that issue? Were people exhausted from the First World War? Did the UK just want to try to be normal for a little while? Like, why were you the only one of the only people who were saying this is a serious issue? Well, to me, it was quite plain. Uh, mm-hmm. If you make shitty art, you're going to become a mass murderer. <laughs> that is uh, as, as simple an equation as I think there is okay. in the world. All right. Yeah. So you saw some of his uh, Hitler's terrible art and you thought this man is up to no good. We have to stop him as soon as humanly possible. That's exactly correct. Why so, not? I'm uh, just surprised that you saw any of his art. Like he wasn't known for being an artist. That was something that we figured out after he became. Well, I this... spent quite a bit of time in Berlin between the wars. You know. Oh, did you really? Yes. Well, uh, I know that you were in France for a little while. About culture vulture. A culture vulture. You were trying to please correct me if I'm wrong, but were you in Germany? As part of your quest to find the hidden gold that was on this treasure map that you found, guilty when you were as kid. charged. Yes, uh, the the clue there was look to Berlin, where the uh, the Silicon Queen shall take a nightly rest. Upon the bedpost, you'll find the hand of a another mummy. Honestly, I don't know about so many mummies, but there was another mummy involved. Is it really? It sounds like that first part was definitely written by like a an ancient treasure map writer, but then it kind of trails off. Well, it turned out it was that written, would have tipped me off. It was know? written by my mom and dad. You know, a lot oh, of people think that all moms and dads can write poetry, but if there's any better <laughs> proof that they can't, it's that fucking treasure map. It really Jesus. fell apart at the yeah, end. Yeah, you're some really judgmental of everybody else who's trying to do poetry besides you, Emily Dickinson. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, scoreboard. <laughs> All right, that's fair. So what were you trying to do to stop the Hitler menace, Winston Churchill? Trying to bully him. You were trying to bully I'd go around to other people, the the different uh, uh, galleries, and say, look at that fool over there, Hitler. Mm. He's not much, is he? He's got I think a terrible that, mustache. Maybe that had the opposite effect. Like, you know, you're saying that you saw this guy, you saw his art was terrible, you knew he was going to be a mass murderer, and so you then decide to incense him by making fun of the art that is going to lead him down the path. So you're saying I, I made Hitler Hitler. I'm thinking because I'm thinking about it. I, I got him fired from his job. You got um, him fired from his job. Yeah, as... I made his girlfriend break up with him. Wow. Yes. I didn't even know he had a girlfriend while during this phase of his life. He did not because uh, <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't last very long. He'd go on a date, then I'd swoop in. A charming Winnie, and mm. then she'd be off with me. Wait, then... so you would seduce the women that were going on dates with Adolf Hitler? Didn't you think that that would have that would that would enrage him and make him want to be the violent despot that he eventually became? Well, he had to be. He had to be. Uh, the truth will out. I mean, he <laughs> he had to be shown for what he was. <laughs> so this is almost like you're you're incensing him to show the world his, their true colors and basically rally everybody around him. Do you think it would have been more a sinister and maybe uh, uh, more insidious if you hadn't have done this? Maybe he, he no, would've... he would have been even much worse. I mean, certainly, <laughs> certainly, everything I did was for the good. Um, I at one point. I, he was raising a horse, and I dressed up as a girl horse and made that horse leave him as well. <laughs> and I, he had, a, he had a silo full of grain, and I poisoned it. You poisoned Hitler's grain silo? 
That's correct. Uh, that, oh, God, there's so many. That, that is a statement that raises so many more questions. <laughs> now, let me ask you this as, as somebody who wrote about death and mortality so much, uh, Emily Dickinson. You know, we, we have this, this, uh, these two world wars, you know, after you've already uh, passed away. And, uh, you know, that had to have that, that must have resonated with you, like so much death all over the world. Like, you know, do you do you think that that's a missed opportunity? Like, oh, if only I could have written about the death, you know, uh, happening in concentration camps or on D-Day or, you know, during the Gallipoli campaign or something like that. You know what, Jared? You can't look back. You can only look forward. And World War Three is square on the horizon, <laughs> and I'm here. So, so if, you're looking forward to uh, a, another big World War, so you can write about that instead. Yeah, know, they're fun. I like them. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm like asking for the war, but I mean, we all know it's coming. We see the state of the world, and if somebody is going to be there to be the voice of yet another generation, <laughs> then so be it. All right. Well, let me ask you this. So you, uh, you know, we already talked a little bit about how reclusive you were. Yeah. You know, and so when you uh, when you're 28 years old, uh, you do this lion's share of your writing when you're at home taking care of your sick mom. And that really seems to be the beginning of your hermitude, you know, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you when you're taking care of your mom, uh, you know, some of the correspondence that you wrote, it makes it seem like you were yearning to go out and do things. Uh, but is that the case, you know, like, were you, when you're taking care of your mom, were you like, oh, more of this, please? You know, like, I can't wait to to up the ante here. Um, yeah, so I was yearning for uh, more life, a different life. But you're 28, what happens? Everybody starts getting married and having uh. babies. And I was like, not about that life. Mm. So at that time, there were no options. It was like... Go get married or take care of your sick mom and become a recluse. And honestly, that sounded way fucking better to me. <laughs> and okay. I bet your mom seemed pretty cool because she was sick. <laughs> yeah, she needed my help. I mean, she was not a great mother, um, but... You your mom was not a great mother. No, she was just like annoying you know what I mean and she like didn't take very good care of me Mm -hmm. my dad was away on business a lot but I was a good kid so I Mm. don't know like I feel like I earned a better life and a better shake than I got but here I am I have it now which is why if you're looking (laughs) to throw a foam party maybe do something fun with your sorority sisters I made great friendship bracelets I had no idea that your party planning went beyond weddings that you also did things like foam parties and I don't know uh, would you organize a bachelorette party or interesting yeah a reunion maybe like an anniversary listen I was really becoming a mogul as opposed to just focusing on writing poetry these days there are a lot of ways to share your ideas about life and the human existence Mm. and my poetry remains the place for my contemplations on death but my services and my social media are the place to celebrate life. And I have made a lot more space for that this time around. Because I was going to ask, like, if any of your uh, wedding activities or foam parties had that similar Emily Dickinson morbidity to them, you know? Yeah, well, and every 
every celebration of life, there is the glimmer of our mortality. Uh, that's inescapable. Can you give an example of where, where that comes through in, in in any of your party planning or, yeah, or sure. your Instagram account or anything like that? I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a foam party, yes, but I you, have, you, yeah. the sense of suffocation is instant. Yes, yes, so that is true. So that was a really natural one. Mm-hmm. Weddings are a little trickier. I mean, maybe you're going to mention some people who are no longer with us, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you're just sort of like, you literally say, till death do us part. Mm-hmm. So, and I like to jazz that up a little. Like, you know, you're saying in sickness and health till death do us part. But I like to just ask the couple to really think about what that means. Like, one of you is going to make it farther than the other one, unless there's like, you know, some sort of tragedy, like a fire at home or a car crash mm. at your boat then or something. Like, <laughs> then. They really have to sit with that right before they Mm -hmm. make their vows and not just say, oh, am I in love with this person right now? But like, can I handle going on once they've died? Interesting. Wow. And so you kind of highlight the death part of the of the wedding ceremony. It puts me in mind, you know, of the um, the the wedding scene in uh, uh, Beetlejuice. Right, where Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin are in their wedding clothes and they're all old and sad. Yeah, and yes. then they have like the little uh, the their mouths are all taped yes, up yes. and stuff like that. If yeah. I could do my wedding really over again, that's what I would do. I would do it really? that way. Totally, it really freaked me out the first time I ever saw it. But then once Winona Ryder is dancing to that <laughs> Harry Belafonte song, I was in. Well, that's, I, was I mean, like, she's that's a, the end of the movie. She's a bit so. of an Emily Dickinson to start the oh, film, definitely. isn't she? I mean, oh, she, she kind yeah. of wakes up. I mean, you must. Everybody wants to be Emily Dickinson. Well, let's go back to uh, Mr. Churchill for a moment. So in addition to your uh, incredible leadership and military expertise, you know, you were lauded uh, during World War II for your inspirational speeches. You know, like you have all these incredible moments where you revitalize and inspire this uh, this tired and scared uh, UK, United Kingdom. Uh, and, and that, you know, could be just a testament to your leadership abilities. But it seems like people were talked about how this war kind of like brought you back to life. You know, like like friends say that you look younger when you're fighting, you know, when you're leading the armies of World War Two than you did 20 years beforehand. You know, it, were were those inspirational speeches intended to inspire or were you just jazzed up? Well, both, because I, I do feel at my my best when I'm uh, serving my nation. Mm-hmm. But also, of course, um, I found my my real voice when I was doing those radio addresses. You know, hmm, interesting. Okay. I think that at the time uh, it would be. I was the the goop of my of my time. You were the goop of your time. You yes, said you were I, to... I was kind of a lifestyle. Yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> yeah. presenting that like, a, a way to live. You know, mm. where... well, I mean, that's almost like what Emily Dickinson is doing right now. You know, yeah, is, it is, is yes. you know kind of cultivating this uh, this 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 lifestyle uh, guru ship. You know, yeah, similar to Gwyneth like Paltrow. To say any health claims I make will be based in research and fact, unlike Ooh, Gwyneth Paltrow. That is who a burn. Plays it fast and wow. loose with her recommendations. She is not a doctor. No, I am totally all about death, but I am not promoting ways for people. To wow, die. That, that is incredible. Yes. I, is your girl squad like at odds with Gwyneth Paltrow's girl squad? Is that because uh, I know that sometimes these girl squads, like Taylor's girl squad, can like sometimes you know go to battle with each other, and so I'm wondering if that's if that's a rivalry that we need to know about here on Famous Dead People. Yeah. Um, like Taylor Swift, we're real feminists, so we wow. don't build our brand wow. on feuds with other groups of women. Wow. Oh, wow. That is incredible. Well, you're, you're a tactician. We have a tactician here, Winston Churchill. Yes. You know, what would you recommend uh, Emily Dickinson's girl squad do to maybe throw down against Taylor's girl squad or Gwyneth Paltrow? 
I would uh, try to uh, blow up her home <laughs> and then rush in on foot as soon as that initial explosion uh, dissipates. Almost, yes, yes. Right? Okay, Oof. interesting. Well, yeah, we, we should definitely drop some plans for this because I think that this could really help, you know, uh, like like your lifestyle brand, Emily Dickinson. Yeah, it's important that it takes off in a good way, though, because I got to say, if you don't win it, you're in trouble. Like, Katy Perry disappeared for quite a while after yeah. that one came out. Oof. So I am not looking for that. I have already been dead and gone. <laughs> I mean, it works for me, but I'm back and I'm just ready to live my life. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, let's. I want to ask you, uh, Mr. Churchill, since we were talking about your speeches for a moment, you know, Emily Dickinson was saying that we could be on the cusp of another world war, and she's really excited about uh, some of the, the 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 opportunities that would have for her poetry. You know, do you think that you'd be able to give us a taste of an inspirational speech for a future war that could come come forward? I don't know if that's a tall order or not, but you know, we might need that kind of inspiration going forward. Yes, well, you know, Albert Einstein said, "I'm not sure with what weapons we shall fight World War Three, but I know." If- World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. Ooh, so I'd, I'd like to speak to that audience, you know. Okay. So, uh, oh, the, so you're going to speak to World War Four? Yes. Okay. All right. In this my, is in Winston my... Churchill inspirational speech for the participants of World War Four. Yes. Okay. I would say, ladies and gentlemen of humanity, let's do this war right. Let's <laughs> let's not get it with all the guns and planes and stuff. That's not real war. Let's just meet in some place like Canada, the entire world. <laughs> Empty space and like half of a start on one side and the other half on the other. <laughs> and then we just smash into each other, just it's punching really, each other, tearing each other apart. And that's a world war, man. I think that's unfortunately um, shows a real ignorance as to what Canada is like. It's not just a big flat land. Oh, I know? beg to differ. <laughs> That's flat fair. as a pancake. That's fair. Well, I mean, you should know this. You're one of the uh, you're one of only eight people to have been made honorary citizens of the United States, Winston Churchill. That must have been a great honor. Is that is that uh, a fair thing to say? Yes. Well, you know, also if I go to a Sonic, I get a free shake with <laughs> anything I get because of that. Now, and those two things, I'd say, are highest honors. That's a yeah. That's really incredible. Emily Dickinson, did you have any kind of fringe benefits from? From uh, you know the the poetry that you wrote or the the uh, the connections that you made while you were alive, you know anything anything like uh, the what was it uh, Quiznos Blizzard? Is that right? Uh, no, uh, Quiznos they take care of me too, but oh, I, I you said were Sonic, about yeah. Sonic, Sonic Blizzard. Yes, yeah, sorry, Emily Dickinson. Um, yeah, well, Dunkin' Donuts keeps trying to get me on board with something since I'm a New Englander and that's their thing. Mm. And I guess the Afflecks are a little controversial these days. <laughs> so I'm trying to move into that territory. So what mm-hmm. I'm looking for is for everybody to tweet Dunkin' Dickinson. Just Duncan hashtag Dickinson. Duncan Dickinson okay. because when I say Dunkin' Donuts is trying to get me into something, really, I'm trying to get into something with Dunkin' Donuts. Gotcha. And so, That's very savvy of you. But uh, again, I really don't want to focus on the things that are going forward. I have I have one more question about your life, like you know that that you lived in the past. Uh, so you you we already talked about your reclusivity. You had very few friends. You were unmarried. You live a secluded life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's not just that your work focuses on death, but but murder. Like you write about meeting your demise in some gruesome ways that would involve another person, like shooting, stabbing, guillotine, hanging, crucifixion. How do you explain this trend in your work where you're so secluded, but you but you talking about maybe being killed by another human? Is that... Is that a fair uh, assessment that I'm making there? Yeah, I mean, I would categorize it as I was clearly the most prescient 
American voice because what do we all do now? Here I arrive and everybody just likes to sit at home alone watching Netflix documentaries about being murdered. So obviously I had a taste for what it is that humanity craves and what we crave (laughs) is solitude and the keepers. I think we we would all like to be murdered. Would we all like to be murdered? I think deep show? down, yes, that's I a think common. It's a little bit of a stretch, but that's unfortunately that's all the time that we have for this week's episode of Famous Dead People. I'd like to thank my guests, uh, Winston Churchill and Emily Dickinson, for joining us in the studio today. Uh, I do have one final question for both of you. I know it's a little bit weird, but I'd like to end every show by asking my guests if they have a, a comedy show they want to recommend or a Twitter account that they're a big fan of. Uh, Emily Dickinson, is there anything you want to tell people about out there? Um, yeah, so I'm... Obviously, besides your project, you yeah. know, like we already talked about those so much. I know, I know. Okay, like, so I'm still trying to get verified on Twitter, <laughs> and I think what would help me do that the most is if you could follow one of my best gals. Her name is Molly Khan, um, M-O-L-L-Y, but her last name is spelled C-A-H-E but it's pronounced con I know everything's weird and um, so follow her on Twitter and then you can also see her writing with the sketch team pretty boys on mod night at the UCB theater she's almost as good as me so check it out all right and uh, Winston Churchill anything you want to tell people about uh, people can go see the um uh, TMI, the music industry, Thursdays at the Magnet, or they can listen to uh, Dan Wakes Up Screaming, a delightful um, a podcast of three gentlemen uh, from Brooklyn saying words. <laughs> okay, that sounds incredible. <laughs> uh, if you have any questions that you'd like to ask your favorite dead person, please email that to us at famousdeadpeople at radiofreebrooklyn.org. We'll try to have them on as soon as we can. We're here every Monday at 3 p.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Famous dead people. Famous dead people. Famous dead people. Famous dead people.